Welcome, Cavs fans, to the Fear of the Fro podcast, one of my favorite episodes of the year. I am Bob Schmidt, your host. For those of you who have been here before, welcome back. For those of you new to the pod, thank you for choosing this one. One of my favorite episodes of the year, the Cleveland Cavaliers season preview. A chance to put aside the larger scope picture of the NBA for a day and really dial in on our favorite team, the Cleveland Cavaliers. So this will not be like the last... You know, awards, long shot nonsense. I wanted to do something different. Might have fallen flat. But this one will be a much more pragmatic look at the Cleveland Cavaliers, the team, and then the individual components of the team. Let's not waste any time. Let's get right to it. Welcome to Fear the Fro. Shot blocked by Mobley. Holy Mobley. Donovan Mitchell is 8 for 8 from downtown. Darius Garland. Hit it from Euclid. Lobbed Allen. Pow! Oh, that was gorgeous. A Cleveland Cavalier podcast. What do we need to add? What do we need to give the coach? The game has come down to space and opportunity. We addressed that. Hosted by the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Yeah, his name is Bob Schmidt. Bob, Bob Schmidt. Schmidt. Spectacular talent. That guy is a legend. Got it! The buzzer! Just days away, or a day away, depending on when you're hearing this, from the Cavs opening the season on the road in Brooklyn to take on, well, perhaps Ben Simmons, a return to form, according to many who have watched him in this preseason and have seen him uh, faster, more active, part of an offense which, much like the Cavaliers, is looking to push the pace, and perhaps we'll see a lot more high-scoring game than you would conventionally expect with the Cleveland Cavaliers. But a breakout season expected for Mikhail Bridges, he is not the subject of this podcast, though. The Cleveland Cavaliers are. So let's go through some of what I expect to see with the Cavaliers this season as we're on the brink of kicking things off here, and it comes out of the gate fast. Three games in four days A little bit troubling, concerning Jared Allen hasn't really gotten up to speed, hasn't practiced with the squad. But for the Cavaliers, who open on Wednesday with the Nets and then return home for a three-game homestand in which we'll see the Thunder and the Pacers in back-to-back nights, and then the Knicks before taking them on in New York. So a very active early part of the season. By November 1st, we will have already played five games. Now let's talk about the expectations for this team, both today and where we sat a year ago. Because a year ago, we were coming off that gigantic, somewhat unexpected trade to swoop in and steal Donovan Mitchell from the Knicks. Now I had my concerns with the Mitchell deal, in part because of the timing. By doing it in September, it did not give us an opportunity to replace bench depth. Free agency was over, so it was a bit of a gamble, at least in the short term. But the hope was... Nobody would care about a short-term hit to your bench depth for the overall ceiling being raised by plopping a superstar in with that three-man core of Allen Mobley and Darius Garland. However, the Cavs somewhat were a victim of their own success. Came out of the gate 8-1, and one, exceeded 50 wins for the first time without LeBron, beat their Vegas over-under there, and Donovan Mitchell had a historical year by his standards. Best one efficiency-wise, scoring-wise, had 13 40-point games with the Cavaliers in one season, eclipsing all of the ones that Kyrie had accumulated. 11 during Kyrie's tenure with the Cavs, 13 for Donovan in year one. Finished second team All-NBA, could have very easily finished first team All-NBA, if not for Shea Gilgis-Alexander. And I say all this not because you don't already know it. You obviously do. But it's more to reinforce the point 
that our mindset heading into the playoffs was vastly different from where we were just a few short weeks later. Understandably so, but I think the truth always lies somewhere between the extremes. So forget about your feelings and just view this through the prism of emotionless Vegas gambling. Last season, at this point, we're plus 3,000. That was the 14th best odds behind such historically great playoff franchises like the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Dallas Mavericks, who didn't even make the playoffs last year. This year, the Cleveland Cavaliers have the ninth best championship odds. Now, there's still some nits I would like to pick. The 76ers? Come on. They're right above the Cavs. The Cavs should have the eighth best playoff odds, minimum. But my point is, that's progress. And there's a reason for that, in my view. I think Vegas understands something that some of the more casual fans sometimes overlook. Everybody likes name value. Everybody likes the big splash. But there's something to be said for continuity and for being able to have your stars miss games or be off the floor without just bleeding points. It was one of the more frustrating aspects of the LeBron-era Cavs. It's so many times we were the best in the league when he's on the floor and one of the worst when he would sit down. And that construction was unfortunate because LeBron and his propensity for getting his role players signed to absurdly overvalued deals put us in a bit of a pickle when it came to adding lower-end talent, depth talent on those squads. But with this team and their youth and their contract cycles all sort of aligning, this summer we had the opportunity to still add. And next summer, we're going to have the ability to add a first-round draft pick, more exceptions, Maybe our second round pick this year, Amani Bates, will have developed. Maybe we'll flip Ricky Rubio's deal for another bet. Who knows? The point is, we were damn near dead last. Only two teams in the NBA worse than us last year in bench scoring. That, those filthy Canadians, the Toronto Raptors, and the Portland Trailblazers. Do you remember early February, right near Valentine's Day, a game in which we took on the Bulls, and our bench scored five points collectively. Now you may say, oh, well, we must have just played six guys, right, Bob? No, no. It was a nine-man rotation. Karis LeVert, 0 for 4. Ricky Rubio, 0 for 6. Dean Wade, 0 for 5. Osman was the only one who scored a field goal off the bench. You know how many he scored? One. Two meager points, three free throws. That was it. So my point is, parallel that unit where you had Feaster, Famine, Osman, Dean Wade having a terrible season, and Karis LeVert as basically the only reliable bench player, sometimes spot starter, you must feel better about this team right now. And you don't even have to buy in to Dean Wade being a productive rotation player. You don't have to have the faith that I have in Ty Jerome. The fact of the matter is, those two are probably going to begin the season as little-used luxury types. If you're going to believe the reports from Chris Fedor, they're not even in the opening rotation. He's expecting an eight-man rotation with Isaac Okoro, George Yang, and with Karis LeVert being the ones that get leaned on heavily. Now, me personally, I don't view it as three guys in Tier 1, Dean and Ty Jerome in Tier 2. I view it as one guy in Tier 1, Karis LeVert. He should be deployed nightly with regularity, whether he's going through slumps He should be used night in and night out. Everybody else should be deployed situationally. That includes Nyang. That includes Dean Wade. That includes Isaac Okoro. And that includes Ty Jerome. 
That would be my stacking. Now, I'm not so naive as to think that after spending all this time trying to develop Isaac Okoro, that they're suddenly just going to submarine him to the bottom of the rotation. Big money was being thrown around today. Denny Avdia, four for 55. He just got $13.5 million. He's arguably a worse player than Isaac Okoro. I would entertain arguments in either direction. Aaron Neesmith, three for 33. He got $11 million. Cole Anthony got $13 million, average annual value. Now, less than two months ago, I was saying something to the effect of, I hope we can leverage Isaac's restricted free agency rights to keep him in a deal closer to $10 million a season. I don't think there's any prayer in hell that's happening. I need to recant for my over-optimism in our frugality. Because that's just not realistic, given what we saw today. Isaac Okoro is going to be looking at a deal that's not that dramatically far away from what we just gave Struess. And let's not forget how much of the fan base felt that Struess is getting way too much money. I'm not trying to rip on Isaac. I would just ask that even the staunchest Okoro enthusiasts ask themselves, do you truly believe that you saw enough in preseason to say that this is the breakout season. This is when he'll make an appreciable leap offensively. Or do you just say that because, well, there's no better option and you hope it to be true? See, to me, I have not seen enough with Okoro and a half-court set that I think there'll be a dramatic difference. And I hope to be proven wrong. If you're committed to the idea of extending Okoro with a role of, say, 20 to 25 minutes per night, what would you need to see from him this season to feel comfortable with that kind of figure. But perhaps better put, that figure for an extended period of years. Now, there's absolutely a legitimate point to be made that worrying about dollars is stupid because it's just like when we re-signed Tristan or JR. If you think that you're trying to compete for a title, you cannot let pieces walk out the door and recoup nothing for them. However, I would say we're beyond the point of being able to mask Isaac's deficiencies. And if this summer said anything, it's that the team is coming to terms with the idea, is this Isaac Okoro playing heavy minutes thing a viable long-term strategy? It certainly seems like you could at least question how long of a leash Isaac is going to have this season and moving forward. But let's move off Isaac Okoro and let's talk about the team as a whole. I was listening to the Game Theory podcast because I'm a fucking narcissist today. And I was I had a buddy text me and say, hey, you know, uh, your buddy Bryce brought you up on the Game Theory podcast when he was doing his Cavaliers preview. So, of course, I tuned in because I wanted to see what was the context of that. And it came in the context of a discussion about their moves this summer and how did they do enough in adding the shooters that it makes them a true contender. Now, there was skepticism mainly built around the idea that they don't have anyone to guard the elite wings. And is it asking too much to have Evan Mobley be that guy? And of course, where it landed was here. I'm just going to play you the audio. By the deadline, do you consider moving Jarrett Allen for the type of wing forward we're talking about? Is it? Are we that close to just making that move? $20 million contract, so you're probably going to be able to make money and salaries work pretty well you move Mobley to the five and you trade Jarrett Allen for a insert name of high level, true three and D wing slash forward. I think that's where this is going, but I wonder if they wait until the off season to do it, to get a better handle on Donovan Mitchell's willingness to potentially sign an extension, his happiness in Cleveland, everything like that. 
Now, we've been hearing that particular question since the day Evan Mobley was drafted. With zero NBA sample, we heard, well, this is our center of the future, despite the fact he weighs 215 pounds. Let's shop Jared Allen. If we've seen anything since Evan Mobley got drafted, it's that he's far more than a rim protector. He's switchable. He's fast. He's versatile. He takes good angles. He can guard all the way out to the three-point line. And we're eager for this future where we strip him of that and we put him in this conventional center box and ask him to be the primary rim defender so we can bring in another guy to do his same job, presumably worse, and say, like, let's say it's OG Ananobi. Do you think the gap between Evan Mobley as your rim protector and Jared Allen as your rim protector is smaller or bigger than the gap between Evan Mobley as your all-everything defender and OG Ananobi as your all-everything defender? I personally think the gap might be larger between Mobley and OG Ananobi. That's how incredible and transcendent I think of Mobley as a defender is. To say nothing of the fact that Jared Allen costs $20 million, do you know what a guy like Ananobi or any elite 3 and D wing is going to cost to retain long-term? Probably double that. I mean, just look at Jaden McDaniels. He signed for five years, $131 million a year, $28 million a season for a guy who averages 12 points, who's a great perimeter defender, but is just starting to contribute on the offensive end this past season. That's what we're comparing here. We do need more wing defenders with size. We absolutely do. It's too much to put on a Coro at six foot six or an undrafted Dean Wade. Mobley does need more help there. But just like this summer, we were able to attain elite spacing without having to get rid of Allen. I think we can obtain a high-end wing defender without having to blow up one half of the front court, which anchored the NBA's best defense. I think it's hasty. I get we want to solve everything all at once. But for as much as I hate when people say it's part of the process, it's part of the process. When it comes to big roster moves or when it comes to big liabilities in the structure of your team, those aren't fast fixes. And sometimes when they are, you're just creating other gaping holes if you rush to fix them. Just look at the Isaac Okoro draft. Do you remember where we were at as a team? One of the worst defenses in the NBA. So what did we do? We swung hard the other way. We took the guy that most people projected as the best individual point of attack defender in the draft, despite massive red flags on the offensive end. We took him over other prospects who may have been better long-term, who almost certainly are better long-term. Devin Vassell, much better offensive player, longer, not a bad defender by any means. Do you regret that now? Of course you do. You can swing too far the other way in trying to correct a problem. That's all I'm trying to say here. So where do I expect Jared Allen to go with this next season? Well, I'll say this. I still stand by what I said last year, which is that the high point of Jared Allen's career from an individual standpoint, because Mobley is so attention-grabbing and so transcendent as a defender, is that his accolade portion of his career outside of team accolades is largely done with the Cavaliers. But his value to us transcends numbers. He may be a 15-10 and 10 type player for the remainder of his time here, and I'm perfectly okay with that. Because in games where Jared Allen scored 15 or more points last year, the Cavs we're 26 and 5. This man, despite the inconsistency of the postseason, proved to be one of the most reliable front court players in the league. 32 double doubles for Jared Allen. That's more than Evan Mobley. That's eight more double doubles than Evan Mobley. 
All of it means nothing if he and we collectively shit the bet a second time in the playoffs this year. But I will go to my grave saying that Jared Allen wasn't the only one that failed in that postseason. He had perhaps the toughest assignment of keeping the league's best offensive rebounder off the boards, while at the same time being asked to step away from that man to come out and stop drives down the lane. He failed, absolutely. But so did the game plan. So to put a bow on this, statistically, do I expect any difference from Jared Allen? No. I think, if anything, he probably gets a little bit more in the way of assists, roughly the same rebounds, and, you know, 14 points a game. He's been working a lot from the elbows, so he may be trying to appease all you assholes who think that because he doesn't have a shot, he doesn't have any value, and be able to stretch the floor a little bit to the mid-range. And if that happens, bravo, just a new wrinkle we can throw into the mix alongside with Evan operating from the high post more. But statistically, I don't expect much to change with Jared Allen this season. Let's move forward to Evan Mobley. This is the portion of the podcast that I have literally been pouring over numbers for months for. Because what I did this summer in the downtime while I was soaking in the misery is I went through the last decade of big men who've been taken in the draft and achieved anything of note, all-star status, uh, all defensive NBA consideration. I looked at every one of their last three years. And what I'm going to do is, because this is a dense number thing and I don't want to get too bogged down in minutia, I'm going to post a link to a Google Sheet where I just put all this data so you can look it over. Because if anything, it's interesting trying to see some of the kind of misconceptions we had about certain individual guys. Like take Giannis, for example. He was the very first big I looked at because he was taken a decade ago, rarely used in his first year. So his leap from year one to year two was much more pronounced in large part because unlike Evan, who came in from day one with a large role, Giannis came in raw as hell. And still, at the end of year three, 17 points and eight rebounds on 56% true shooting percentage. Parallel that to Evan Mobley, who last year put up 16 points and nine rebounds on 59% true shooting percentage, on less usage, you have to feel pretty good, despite the fact that a lot of people feel like Evan didn't take the leap they wanted to last year, like Kendrick Perkins, who was railing on him. One thing I will say is there are certain bigs you cannot parallel Evan to because they came in and were just given carte blanche to do whatever the fuck they wanted. Joel Embiid, Carl Anthony Towns, and Chris Tapps Porzingis had insanely high usage rates for rookies, mid-20s. In the case of Joel Embiid, missed the first two years of his career because of injuries, but then came in at age 22 for his first actual year, but he logged a massive 36% usage rate. That is first all-time amongst rookies. LeBron James was only 28.2 his first year. Second, Ben Gordon at 30.5%. So for Joel Embiid to come in, it really is a testament to how little of a shit the tanking Sixers gave. And by year three, age 24, he was averaging 28 points and 11 rebounds and four assists. I don't think it's reasonable to expect that Evan's going to do anywhere close to that. But it also took until year three for Joel Embiid to crack 59% true shooting percentage, something that Evan's already done. You're going to hear again and again that Evan both analytically and statistically, is proven to be very efficient, even if it's not the volume you want. And in the context of his role on the team, it's very impressive. One thing I will say, Evan Mobley didn't backslide anywhere except three-point percentage. 
He took a big jump in field goal percentage. He took a big jump in true shooting percentage. He took a big jump analytically in things like win shares per 48, value over replacement. Yes, the counting numbers, you can find plenty of guys who did more than him in year two. You had Carl Anthony Towns, averaged 25 points a game. Porzingis had 18 points a game. Embiid was 23 points a game. Jaron Jackson Jr. had 17 points a game. Hell, Lowry Markinen averaged 19 points a game in year two. DeAndre Ayton, similar to him, and that he only jumped two points per game from year one to year two, and then he backslid. By year three, DeAndre Ayton went down in scoring to 14 and a half points a game and 11 rebounds. So there were a couple guys who kind of slid from year two to year three. Lowry Markinen, of course, a very popular example and probably the reason he ended up on the Cavs. DeAndre Ayton, Miles Turner backslid. Miles Turner looks very similar to Evan Mobley in that both guys hovered around 20% usage. And Miles Turner went from 10 points a game to 15 points a game, back to 13 points a game. He backslid from 59% true shooting percentage, very comparable to Evan Mobley's numbers in year two, and slid backwards to 57%. So one other thing this data really pounds home is how unbelievable Nikola Jokic was in advanced stats from day one. It is exceptionally difficult. Win shares per 48, just to give you a barometer, the average player in the NBA, a good number for the average player is 0.1. His rookie year, Evan Mobley was right around that. He was a 0.107, so slightly above that. Nikola Jokic came in his rookie year amongst the league leaders at 0.185, and his second and third year, he eclipsed 0.2. Now, if you eclipse 0.2 in win shares per 48, that puts you usually in the top 10 in the entire league. Like just for a frame of reference, Nikola Jokic was the only player in the NBA last season to eclipse 0.3. He finished with 0.308. The win shares per 48 he achieved in his second year in the league at age 21, 0.228. If he did that this season, he'd have the fourth most win shares per 48 in the entire NBA. The only guys who had better were himself, were the 2023 version of Jokic, Jimmy Butler, and Joel Embiid. Now, one last observation I'll make. I don't, I don't want to get too dense in numbers, and I feel like I am. The one last thing I want to say is that Chris Stapps Porzingis does not get enough credit for what he did at age 20, 21, and 23. This is a man who leapt big every year. 14 points a game, 7 rebounds as a rookie. By year 3, 23 and 7. While he's always been more of a perimeter-oriented guy, his true shooting percentage doesn't mirror that of an Evan Mobley. A lot was put on his plate immediately, and by year three, he was also eclipsing a 30% usage. So his advanced analytical stats aren't a lot, but I think it's funny now to think of him as the third option on a Boston team when a lot of people would kill for year one through three of Chris Stapps Porzingis. I'm just going to leave it at that. I'm going to leave it at that so you can look at the numbers and make your own conclusions. But go to the show notes in Spotify. I don't know if it will translate to Apple. I, I really am not sure. I'm going to link to a Google Sheet, though. And if you want to take a look at some of those, please do. So to my expectations for Evan Mobley, I do not believe he'll be an all-star this year. I'll just say that. I think he'll continue to progress. I think it's good that the Cavs are committed to putting the ball in his hands more, and I hope we see a modest improvement. But if there's a lesson to take away from the data, it's that the most usage increase seen by any one of these bigs in the last decade in a single season was 6.7%. Chris Stapps Porzingis went from 24 to 31 in one season, basically. And DeMontis Sabonis 
from year one to year two went from 15% usage up to 22% usage. But the average increase in usage is much closer to 2 or 3% at best. So for Evan Mobley to basically lose 0.2% in usage, he had less usage from year two to year one. And to still go up across the board is a testament to how much more efficient he got with his shot selection. Now, numbers aside, what am I most excited about with Evan coming into this season based on preseason? Well, first is this budding chemistry we got to see in this last preseason game between him and Max Struess. We all saw the stories about the film sharing of Struess and Bam Adebayo and how they played off one another. And Evan is a quick study, a very intelligent guy. And I thought we got to see some of that manifesting in that last preseason game. The other thing I liked... Evan's handle looks tighter. It does seem like he dribbles a bit lower than he did. He's more comfortable switching hands. Um, and maybe it's just the preseason competition, but I thought I saw improvements there. Now, to his work in the weight room, I know that I still don't think he's where he needs to be. I do think he's made progress. I don't think he's there yet. I don't think we saw a ton in the preseason that showed that much improvement in his back-to-the-basket game. Uh, and I do think... If he can continue to put on muscle and he can move guys with his lower body, that is going to be huge because his understanding of pump fakes and body control, that's always been exceptional. You add some aggression to that where guys can't dislodge you as you're jumping, it's going to allow him to finish even more of those shots around the rim. Because sometimes I think the misses are simply because he gets a little off balance when he's trying to elevate and guys are putting contact on him. So I think we will see an improved Evan Mobley. Obviously, I'm not the type of person that thinks he's ready to make some massive leap and all of a sudden become the best player on the team. I don't. Plus, I think that's underselling the talent we have around him. Donovan's a known commodity, but I also think Darius Garland is in store for a big leap. If nothing but lip service, the way he talked about it being his team, I think you're going to see a more assertive Darius Garland this year, whereas we got a little bit more deferential trying to help Donovan acclimate version last year. So I do expect more from Evan Mobley, but I'm not looking at it like, okay, everybody else is going to roughly stay the same while Evan Mobley makes a massive leap. I'm expecting incrementally better stat lines from both Evan and Darius Garland and perhaps a mild step backwards in scoring production from a Donovan Mitchell because I'm hoping we don't have to put as much on him. So let's move on to Darius Garland. I've already said what I expect here. I mean, I summarized it just a moment ago. I think he basically held serve, statistically speaking, was roughly as efficient, and I thought he got better as the year went on, and he had a massive game in the playoffs against the Knicks, but unfortunately, he had some no-shows there. I've always felt like Darius Garland is the key to unlocking the bigs, and an improvement from him coincides with an improvement for Evan Mobley. So that's my expectation, an uptick from him and an uptick from Mobley, and perhaps a slight downtick from Donovan Mitchell. But that's really a testament to the insane season he had last year and me being skeptical that we can ask him to continue to sustain that level of production and efficiency. Now, to speak to the all-star status of this team, I still think we're in line for one all-star. It's just too deep. The bigs we have in the Eastern Conference are ridiculous. Evan has his work cut out for him. I will say Max Struess. 
I think he'll take a bit of a statistical regression, but he's not here to pile up counting stats. We have plenty of scoring on this team. He's here to keep teams honest so that we can open up lanes for guys like Darius and Donovan and so that he can capitalize on better, cleaner looks. The stat has been run out there time and time again. The chase down guys have brought it up. The average distance from the defender to the shooter, Max Struess's was incredibly low. He's going to get better looks here, and he can sacrifice some production for the sake of the opportunities it creates within the offense. Yang, betting against 40% on three-point shooting from him is stupid at this point because the man's like clockwork. The stats of these other guys are irrelevant. In terms of the changes to the hierarchy of the Cavs, I guess my prediction would be Donovan takes a slight, slight step backwards, even though he's still going to be the primary scorer on her team so that Evan Mobley and Darius Garland can continue to rise. That's what I'm hoping for. That's what I expect. As far as regular season standings for this team, it's so hard to know without injuries. If Giannis goes down for a substantial period of time, I don't think it's out of the realm of discussion that the Cavaliers could finish with a top two seed in the Eastern Conference. I don't think it's cemented that a Boston or a Milwaukee is for sure there because also those are veteran teams who've made deep playoff runs. They've proven that they show up in the playoffs, it may not be as important to them as being healthy when the playoffs arrive. The Cavaliers need to be cognizant as we get to the late part of this season of, obviously, you want the highest seed you can get. It also became very apparent last year that sometimes you just want to avoid certain matchups. Had we gotten the Brooklyn Nets in the first round, and I mean no disrespect to our opening night opponent here, but had we gotten them, We may be looking at last season completely differently because it wouldn't have had such a crushing, disappointing end with a suboptimal matchup. So let's get to this regular season opener. Thank you to everyone who has joined me for the Fear the Fro podcast. This was my season preview. And I just want to recap one thing here in terms of NBA awards because I did my farcical, you know, odds related picks. Uh, This is my expectation. There's a few guys that I think are going to have breakouts and I just want to say it here. Um, Indiana. That would probably be the th- team that I think is most likely to break out in the East. I They play as tough every time last year, even in the preseason. Uh, they've got a bunch of young guys, a bunch of progressing guys. I don't know why. I just think they're going to be better than people expect them to be as far as those teams that hover between the play-in and the late seeds in the Eastern Conference. And in terms of Boston versus Milwaukee, I'll say I'm still more scared of Milwaukee. I get it. Boston looks to be formidable, but there's a lot resting on Drew and Chris Stapps staying healthy, and they lost a bunch of depth in order to execute the vision that they have here. Milwaukee, Giannis is just such a force of nature. I will always be terrified of him. And analytically speaking, do I expect the Cavs to repeat as the best defense in the NBA? I think we're top two for sure. We may not finish first this year, but I think we'll still finish as a top two defense. And being that we were a top 10 offense last year, I don't know what our actual ranking will be as far as offense. I don't think it'll be that far off from where we finished last year, hovering around 10, maybe 8, 9, 10, somewhere in there. But when the playoffs come around, I think we're far more equipped to deal with people game planning against Darius or Donovan Mitchell in a way that we just weren't last year, obviously.
And and for the final roster spot, I've seen discussions about, well, what are we going to do with Rubio? Nothing's happened with Rubio. Final roster spot. I think the Cavs will keep it open because that's just what they do. And they should because who knows who will come free around buyout time? Who knows who you'll want to convert throughout the course of the season? Do I expect a prolific role for Amani Bates? No, I don't. Uh, I would just be happy with him working through the development system. And finally, what do I consider an acceptable outcome for this season? Well, if you told me as of today, obviously this can this stuff can shift because throughout the course of last year, I think everybody's collective expectations were raised to the point where losing in the first round felt very unacceptable. My feeling right now is I expect to at least make it to the second round and put forth a competitive series, even if we lose. Now, if you gave me two outcomes, if you said I could make it to the conference finals and get the doors kicked in or make it to the second round but lose in a competitive series, I would take the second round. The last thing we can afford at the end of this season is for there to be a perception that the gap between us and whoever inevitably knocks us out of the playoffs is so great that we can't overcome it by keeping most of our current core intact. This season is as As much of it is about taking a step forward as it is about proving to Donovan Mitchell that we can put forth a contender because we cannot afford to lose him for anything, nor will we. They'll trade him if they don't think that that's going to happen next year at some point. But at that point, you're dealing a leveraged asset. You're not going to get back a maximum return here. Even if you don't believe in Donovan Mitchell as your first option on a title team, it's still a better scenario for us to re-sign him and then give us more opportunities later to maximize a return. We put forth a very good season this year, continue to improve, and then through the draft next year, through whatever exceptions we can sign, and through the improvement of our own young players, we put ourselves firmly in the conversation where we're no longer a plus 2,500 odds team to win the championship, but instead we're sub plus 1,000. We're, we're clumped alongside a Celtics, alongside a Bucks. And we have every chance to vie for that ascension this following year. Oh, and finally, I want quickly to sign a gigantic fucking extension. Because the other win here is if the Knicks eat up their cap space, retaining their own young, great talents, even though quickly suck shit in the first round last year. But I want them to give him huge, huge money just simply so that when... The Donovan Mitchell summer rolls around. I don't have to hear people talking about, well, he can just sign into cap space. I want it to be a situation where even if he decides to test the market, it would take our cooperation for him to be signed and traded to the Knicks because it gives us far more leverage. But we haven't even played the first game. This is about hope. So that hatred can be delayed until that back-to-back later in the month. That's all for this podcast. If you liked it, Leave a rating, leave a review. I have a special debut start of the season song slash pod coming up after the Nets game, which hopefully we are victorious during. Thank you very much for listening to the Fear of the Fro podcast. I am Bob Schmidt, and you are fantastic. Thank you. This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.